0: This week on the Backtable Podcast. I like the idea of thinking big and thinking small at the same time. And, you know, maybe I'm lucky enough that I work with enough companies to be in a position to try to dig a little bit deeper. But I think that's true of anybody. And, you know, anybody who's out there who's using these devices and wants to really understand what's going on and wants to do some work, you know, they can generally reach out to the companies and, you know, work on a plan to better understand the mechanism of action with an eye to how this will change their clinical use of the device. Hello everyone, and welcome
1: to Backtable, your source for all things endovascular and more. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on any platform like Spotify, or even our website, backtable.com. You can follow us on socials like Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn, and keep up with the latest updates, and please give us feedback through comments. First, a quick word from our sponsors.
2: A patient with PAD can show symptoms in a variety of ways. This presents unique challenges when choosing a treatment option that is effective in improving outcomes across a broad spectrum of arterial disease. Angiodynamics' Orion System changes everything. Using cutting edge laser tech that can aspirate anywhere, featuring a 355 nanometer wavelength and 25 nanosecond pulse width, the Orion System conquers disease with science in a way no other platform does. With the most versatile laser on the market, the Orion System is able to treat PAD ISR, CLI, and ALI, whether it's above the knee or below the knee. Different from most lasers, the Arian System's 3.5 Photon Energy allows it to spare the vessel wall while attacking lesions. This safety profiles while leading interventionalists have chosen the Arian System to treat more than 25,000 patients over the last two years and deliver improved quality of limbs and lives. Visit arian-system.com to learn more. And now back to the show. I'm Sabine
1: as your host today, and I'm ecstatic to welcome back the illustrious Dr. John Runback from Advanced Interventional and Vascular Services in Holy Name Medical Center and American Endovascular and Amputation Prevention. Welcome back, John.
0: Thank you, Sabine. The last time was terrific. I'm so glad to be back on this amazing podcast.
1: Thank you. I mean, yeah, our last time we recorded was almost exactly a year ago. We talked about new tools to treat FEMPOP disease, and uh, it was actually one of our most popular episodes, by the way, man. So thank you so much for that. Awesome. For our listeners, that was episode 212. So today, we're going to take a closer look at calcium in arteries. And by closer, I mean much closer with micro CT. And so you might be asking yourselves, what the hell is micro CT? I'm asking myself that too. So we're going to get into that soon. But before
0: that, how's the last year been treating you? How are you? Oh, spectacular. You know, we're in both the hospital and the office-based laboratory ambulatory surgery center, which is hybrid now. So we're trying to do those sort of things that I think vascular specialists need to do, work in different environments, very high-end practice doing complex procedures. We've integrated TCAR now into our practice on a regular basis, which has been super nice, along with everything else we were doing. So it's been a good year.
1: So that's great. So in the last year, you actually, you know, before you were completely
0: office-based outpatient, now you've you've been a hybrid program with a hospital? Yeah, well, we've always had hospitals. Obviously, we've always uh, needed places to admit patients. So I've been to Holy Name for 17 years, but uh, now we're pretty equally divided where we deploy our patients.
1: That's great. That's great. Yeah, sometimes, you know, some cases need to be done in the hospital, like some of these complex real cases. So that, that's great that you have both options there. So, yeah. Okay. Micro CT. I mean, when I heard this topic, I heard micro CT, I was thinking, is this like some microscopic CT scanner? What is it? You know, that's
0: what I thought too originally. So you're you're not (laughs) alone in that. (laughs) So, you know, this really started, the genesis of this is that, you know, we do these interventions all the time, Sabine, right? And, you know, we're kind of told mechanisms of action and we think we understand it, but we don't really understand these things on a fundamental level. I mean, you know, what's really kind of happening at that interface between our devices and the tissue and what the result of that interaction is. So working in this particular case with angiodynamics, we wanted to get a better understanding of the mechanism of action of their atherectomy device, the Orion atherectomy. So we kind of talked about how to do that and came across some of the material which had been published by Shockwave looking at disruption of calcium that was using micro CT. So Really, a lot of the credit here now goes out to a Lok Finn, who we reached out to at Cardiovascular Path down in uh, Gaithersburg, Maryland, and we reached out to them. So micro CT is not a miniaturized CT
1: scanner.
0: <laughs> a matter of fact, it's sort of the opposite in the sense that obviously in a CT scanner, the subject is stationary and the image or the, you know, fluoro source or the x-ray source rotates in the gantry and obviously, you know, various technologies around that. In micro-CT, the X-ray source is stationary, but the object is on a rotating stage. So that's how you get the three-dimensional perspective. And, you know, the difference is that unlike a CAT scanner, which you get, you know, maybe three millimeter, if you really want to get thin cuts, one millimeter resolution, the resolution for micro-CT, which is a non-destructive imaging method, is in the range of three to five microns with the Nikon device we use, and in some cases, as low as one micron. So it's really a microscopic evaluation of the tissues.
1: Okay. Okay. So it's funny you talk about we don't know the process behind things because it's true. I mean, I see a 2D black line. It's narrow. I put a balloon or atherectomy. It gets bigger. And, you know, we, we have IVUS and things like that. But yeah, we, we don't know what's going on in that one micron, three micron level. So the Subjects that you're putting on this rotating table—is it like a cadaveric specimen after
0: treatment, and and it's a small little like piece of tissue, or what are you scanning? Exactly. So, micro CT has been used in industry for you know many years. It's a very rapid technique it allows a tremendous evaluation of just the internal structure of anything. It's used to look at baffles and you know microscopic structure of electronic equipment. In this case, yeah, it was screened cadaver arteries. So the arteries were screened based upon cardiovascular risk factors in the individuals while they were alive. And those who had substantial risk factors suggesting atherosclerotic burden were then obtained, the limbs were obtained, and they were just subject to regular x-ray. Uh, those limbs, uh, isolated limbs to see if there was indeed calcification, because that was our target, both for femoral popliteal, but particularly in this study for infrapompatial or tibial calcification. Once we had cadaver limbs, and that's a challenging screening process in zone to get limbs, subject them to x-ray, divide these into sort of sections so we can have an idea where we can and can't apply our technology or do our experiment. Once we have that, then the arteries were actually isolated. They were dissected free from the limb. So now you had these calcified arterial segments laid out on a table. So reminding me of uh, anatomy lab in med school, huh? Like dissecting these arteries out. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but even then, they're sort of still attached to the tissue. These were just pieces of spaghetti, in essence. Wow. You know, separate arteries, you know, obviously branching and everything else that arteries do, which we would then sort of lay out. And uh, what we did is we then, because you want tissue support when you do interventions to kind of simulate real life, basically it's a gel matrix inside a water bottle, which is slid open. And you kind of lay the arteries inside this gel matrix. So you have tissue support around the artery. You cannulate both ends. You have a pulsatile pump. And now you're. Have flow through these uh, arteries, and in this particular work, since we you know thought that the medium inside the arteries might affect the results, we actually had human blood, whole blood, which we were circulating through the arteries. Whoa, okay, now I get it. So you put basically this artery in a
1: gel, it's like the connective tissue, and then it gives you some compliance when you start putting fluid through the artery, so it plumps up, right? You're kind of recreating a little, you know, let's say a calf, basically, on the table. Okay. And you're circulating human blood through that, and you're doing interventions in that
0: ex vivo experiment. Is that true? Exactly. Under fluoroscopy with an OEC camera.
1: Oh, wow. And then what kind of interventions were you testing? Uh, Was it just anything? Balloon angioplasty, POBA, DCB, IVL, everything, or, or specifically you were looking at the atherectomy?
0: Yeah, in this particular case, you were very interested in the impact of this atherectomy on medial calcium. Obviously, when you're treating infrapompatial work, which is where we like to use, in particular, the smaller laser, and this happened to be the Orion platform, but you know, this may apply to other technologies as well. It'll be interesting to see the differential impact of other technologies on medial calcium now compared to this experiment. But in this particular case, which was sponsored by uh, angiodynamics, we threaded this uh, down into the uh, tibial uh, vessel, and the goal was to see the impact of atherectomy on medial calcium. So we basically went ahead, did our angiogram, identified our segments, had different treatment groups, an algorithm was set up, some were plain old balloon angioplasty, sort of as a control, completely untreated areas actually served as a better control. For instance, you know, if there was disruption of calcium, was it just from our handling the specimen, right? Did we, and laying it down, just- to- Did you crack it? Yeah. Crack it, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. Right. So, and then uh, obviously there the treatment segments, and then we subjected those treatment segments to different energies and algorithms, 50 millijoules alone, 60 millijoules alone, 50 and 60 millijoules, 50 millijoules with angioplasty to see where we had impact on calcium. And again, the goal was to sort of reproduce the images that Shockwave had had. You're probably also familiar with some of the work that CSI has done where they've looked at orbital atherectomy utilizing both OCT, I believe, and definitely IVUS, where you have this change in this arc of calcium but you know, that's not as visually spectacular. So when you do IVIS, okay, something's changing and you know, it's reverberating a little bit differently, but you don't get those same pictures of disruption of calcium.
1: The resolution, I mean, is just, if you have intimal calcification on an IVIS image, I mean, everything else is shadowed out essentially, right? You know, before we go into the effects of the devices, when you first started looking at this, whether it's the ex vivo specimen or the micro CT images, like, what, what did you learn on these arteries? Was there any, like, big aha moments? You said, oh, this is showing me something completely different
0: pre-intervention? Well, let me step back even before that, you know, because the aha moment, maybe it occurred, you know, a year or two earlier. <laughs> okay, yeah. You know, when we brought over the XMO platform, which was, you know, the Israeli platform, which is now the Orion laser, which was purchased by Angiodynamics, I had been the uh, international and principal investigator for that IDE study. And we, you know, had a fair amount of calcium in that study. I believe 40% of, you know, patients had moderate or severe calcium. We also had other kind of, you know, plaque morphologies. And we noticed a couple of interesting things. First of all, in both the IDE study and the subsequent, you know, registry, some patients get that DCB after atherectomy and angioplasty, some didn't. Some patients had calcium, some didn't. And our observation when we interpreted the data that there didn't seem to be a whole lot of difference in clinical outcomes at six months and a year in terms of restenosis and obviously events in patients who had DCB or didn't, and patients who had moderate severe calcium versus lesser degree of calcium. So that was sort of an aha moment there. Are we using this laser in a way? Maybe it's not specific to this particular laser, but we think it is. That is obtaining a different result than we would have anticipated with other modes of antherectomy. So that was the first aha moment. Now. The next remarkable thing is we went back to angiodynamics and said, you know, this looks a little bit different. We need to do some preclinical work. Would you support that? It's a big ask. Yeah. Right. It's a big ask. And, you know, it's always a little bit of an iffy proposition because, you know, in general, especially when you've had fairly favorable results, companies are a little hesitant to kind of open up the lid a little bit, look under the trunk. and They already (laughs) know it's working. Let's not like rough the feathers, basically. Right. You don't want to maybe find something you didn't anticipate finding. So, so they were really open to it doing this and focus first on the idea of, uh, CT because I'm sure, you know, CT to me is the biggest barrier we have for teal work. I, I have a joke. I said, you ever play rock, paper, scissors? Always choose rock. (laughs) It's a good, it's a good one. It's a good, good choice. I always do that too. (laughs) Because as far as I could tell, rock always wins. So (laughs) yeah. So that was the uh, milieu we wanted. So sort of looking at these arteries, I mean, it's interesting. First of all, they're very densely calcified specimens. You don't have that picture to show. And yet when you feel them, they don't feel like rigid tubes. Sure, sure. They don't feel like hard rock. No, I mean, these are still arteries that are bending and folding and pliable. So, you know, although this is a lot of calcium, it doesn't externally affect the feel and the visual aspects, the optics of the artery nor is it so rigid that just manipulating it cracked as we said before the calcium so we will we will handle these specimens sort of lay them down and you know put them into the gel mold as we wanted to so that that was sort of interesting no difficulty cannulating them with sheets on each end and tying them down obviously this is ex vivo we, we would occasionally have some holes in the artery which you had to sort of close up <laughs> okay okay <laughs> so little bleeders little yeah, perforations it wasn't always the neatest experiment yeah but yeah um, yeah that's funny. <laughs> but all in all, it worked, uh, it worked very well. I think we were able to achieve our objectives. The other thing is, which is interesting, and this is sort of a little bit of background, is, you know, Jahad Mustafa, you know, he does extravascular ultrasound when he does these interventions. He has the good fortune, and some labs now do, of having an, what do they call them, interventional sonographer, who's in the room and, and you know, sort of watching this. And so he had already had an observation that areas of calcium that were not that pulsatile when de novo, after he had gone and done atherectomy, were now pulsatile. So he restored the compliance of the blood vessel. And that's a little interesting because if you go back to basic science and physiology, that compliance of the vessel is directly related with production of nitrous oxide, vasodilatory factor, and you know, anti-restenotic cytokines. So there may be something just restoring the normal pulsatility and compliance of vessel in addition to somehow disrupting calcium to allow maximal luminal expansion.
1: All right. So, I mean, we all see these pretty pictures. I mean, if we look and, and we'll include it on our podcast notes of what a micro CT image looks like so people can see it. After you performed different procedures, you know, including the RN laser, what did you find? I mean, were there breaks in calcium? Did it restore the compliance like you're mentioning? Did you do anything bringing it back to GM and stuff that they described a white stop sign when the whole vessel was just calcium? Like, did
0: you look at that too? Tell us your results. Well, first of all, I learned that there's more than one type of medial calcium. As we get into this, medial calcium has many different patterns. There's a, a speckled pattern, which as you can imagine, are just sort of little islands. There is a shingle pattern, which looks like shingles on a roof, kind of overlapping. There's sort of a sheet pattern where there's non-congruous, incomplete curvilinear sheets. And then there's a plate pattern. So the plate pattern is really what we worry about. That's the worst form of Malckenberg's medial calcification because the plate generally is circumferential, uninterrupted, continuous calcium. That's the one that's preventing any pulsatility or expansion of the vessel. That's the one that's physically limiting us. You know, when you go in there and you do your balloon, the balloon won't open, right? That's plate calcium.
1: Fluoroscopically, is that when we see like medial calcinosis, is is that the tram tracking or is there any way to see that
0: plate-like calcification On a a non-micro CT image? You know, when you have very dense circumferential calcium, that's often plate, but not always plate calcium. You know, the truth is both the sheet calcium and the shingle calcium can look fairly dense, but since it's not contiguous and you can't tell that in any one plane, there is still expansitility. You know, it is still not contiguous so the vessel is still able to expand and be compliant. So in those cases, generally the balloon will expand. It's when you have this solid kind of plate of calcium circumferentially. I'm not sure you can tell that entirely just by flora.
1: So about these different patterns of medial calcification, then, then what did you find with your results
0: then after that? So when we do atherectomy, and again, we're talking about the Orion here, but in general, if you think about it, we're giving a lot of energy into the artery. And obviously with laser in particular, there are various modes of tissue interaction. As we all know, you can have a photochemical effect, you can have a photothermal effect, and then you have a photomechanical effect, right? Each of these sort of work differently. But you know, even the fact you have a photothermal effect, obviously you're imparting a lot of energy. When you're doing something like orbital atherectomy, this thing is sort of you know rotating around. Extirpative atherectomy is a little bit different because it's cutting, it's not delivering energy. But any of these things that are delivering modes of energy, that energy is not necessarily longitudinally transmitted. So Previously, the idea is that there's probably radial transmission of that energy into the vessel wall, and that's been called pulsatile waves. Okay, outward. Right, outward. And CSI picked up on this as a mechanism of action whereby they're not just going ahead and sanding intimal calcium, but now they're having an impact on deeper calcium, which is why you can expand balloons at a lower inflation force than you would if you did not do orbital So they already had this idea of pulsatile waves. And the belief was that, Laser's probably doing the same thing. It's a different outward radial force. It's not an orbiting, you know, solid crown, but there is tremendous energy being delivered. And in the Orion laser in particular, it's got an extremely short bandwidth. So it's a 10 nanosecond bandwidth. So think about a jackhammer, right? You know, you could take something that's sort of moving slowly and try to make your way through the pavement and, you know, you'll make a dent. But with a jackhammer, with this short pulse width, it's a very high focal uh, delivery of energy briefly. And as a result, not only is that forward-directed energy to open up any forward-facing plaque that's outwardly, you know, radiating, and that's the idea that you get these pulsatile waves, which are disrupting the vessel wall. So when we ran the Orion laser, we found that there were a couple of dependent interactions. First of all, the fifty millijoules was not as effective as the sixty millijoules, which supports this idea that you know you need more energy to disrupt the calcium. And secondly. We really only saw the effect on circumferential plate calcium because otherwise you have compliant tissue, which would just dissipate that outward radial force. It'll absorb it. Absorb it, right. So, or it would have give. So in the circumferential plate calcium, when you use 60 millijoules in every single analyzed segment, we saw a now disruption of calcium. And what's really amazing is if you look at those micro CT images, the longitudinal images or, you know, the inside out images, like you're looking down the vessel, it looks exactly the same as Shockwave. Interesting. So
1: I want to kind of pull it back. Probably no one has access to a micro CT in their lab. Guarantee no one who's listening on this podcast has that or can see, you know, this plate-like calcification, medial, etc. cetera. So, so coming back to a practical standpoint, one is with your findings of using a laser and other atherectomy devices. Do you need to make a difference between intimal and medial and decide on your atherectomy device based on that? And to do that,
0: would you use IVIS or what would you do? I mean, this is not an IVIS podcast, but we use IVIS in almost every case. Obviously, a lot of reasons to use IVIS make sure you're intraluminal, first of all. Atherectomy is a very different value proposition if you're subintimal, although we do use it in selected cases if there's calcium to get an idea, obviously, of vessel size and determine calcium. So, Absolutely. So when we see uh, patients who have a lot of calcium, now we're looking at calcium dedicated technologies, right? Which might be orbital antherectomy, or now based upon this data, uh, it might be more Orion or you know, other forms of laser antherectomy. If we see a lot of intimal calcium and really just complete shadowing, like you said, now we're leaning more towards orbital antherectomy. Now we have to get that inner surface before we can ever have an impact on the media. If we see deeper calcium, deep to the internal elastic lamina, that gray ring, on Ivis, Now, those are ideal cases based upon our findings of this technology. And what you said is exactly right. We did this study with an idea to finding a clinical implication. This wasn't just sort of done in isolation. You know, the idea was how can we learn from this that we could guide clinicians on what to do. And that's exactly the point that we came up with. If you come have a patient and you see this calcium and it's not predominantly intimal and circumferential calcium, that's a case that, You uh, want to make sure you go super slow so you deliver energy. B, you want to make sure you make a pass at least 60 uh, millijoules so that you can treat that appropriately. So a follow-up question to that too,
1: why not just turn up the energy all the way? What does the energy go up to above 60? Can it go to 80?
0: No, there's two settings, 50 and 60. The reason that we don't necessarily do that is that the unique thing about the Orion laser, since it's a very, very short pulse width and it's delivering these bursts of energy, is that it's actually on a fraction of the time. And because it's on a fraction of time, there's a large amount of time for tissue cooling. So the predominant effect is photomechanical and not photothermal, because as you know, thermal injury has its own long-term impact on producing re That's why we generally start low, right? by starting low, you're avoiding thermal injury. If you need to, then you can go a little bit higher, certainly if you want to maybe get a larger lumen. But you know, when you have calcium, you need to use the sixty.
1: And again, I'm more familiar with the Spectronetic slash Philips, you know, laser, where that had you know different settings as two different numbers, you know, where you can go up to even eighty. Now, how does that compare? And is it still doing the jackhammer effect you're talking about and delivering energy in a photomechanical way to the medial
0: and maybe even other adventitial or intimal layers? Yeah, I mean, obviously you have the frequency and the fluence that you're adjusting on the Philips laser. So the fluence is basically the size of the microbubble, right, at the end, and the frequency is going to be the mechanical effect of that. Either way, the pulse width on that uh, laser is more in the order of 100 or even more, I think it's even more than that, nanoseconds. Whereas the pulse width on the Orion laser is 10 nanoseconds. So it's going to be much, much more thermal delivery with that. So yeah, you can dial it up, But by dialing it up, you're actually getting a lot of thermal energy delivered into the vessel wall in theory. Again, a lot of this is kind of in theory. It's hard to test this specifically. You can't put a little temperature probe, you know, but... (laughs) You
1: can put it in your, you know,
0: your bottle with the gel. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Give it a try,
1: yeah. Uh, No, it's very interesting. You know, I'll I'll be honest. In my practice, where we have a ton of tibial disease, a ton of calcium, I've always been under the impression of... You know, if I'm doing atherectomy, my first thing is CSI. I think CSI, orbital atherectomy, is is my go-to because I have been so disappointed with other technologies with heavy calcium in the tibials. I mean, it's, it's a tough thing. And I, I've always asked my friends, Kumar, all these other people, Mark, you know, Mike Watts, you know, do you guys use laser and stuff? And, you know, they'll say yes. And then I'll try the laser that I'm familiar with. And it just didn't work. And so that's why I always go back to orbital atherectomy. You know, now we've been using shockwave a little, but it's annoying when you have a shorter balloon and I want to treat a 150, 200 centimeter length vessel, a millimeter, but it's just, you know, you can't use that short balloon and I know they're developing longer ones. So it's interesting to see your development here. It's opening up my eyes to see, you know, maybe I'll explore laser for tibials. I mean, there's a lot more stuff we need to know, but aside from that, any other technologies you're using in the tibial?
0: We use a lot of orbital atherectomy. And I think the differentiating point for me, although it doesn't necessarily need to be, is you you get these cases where the wire will go and nothing else will go. You know, actually happens with some regularity, right? Really, really tight lesions. So those are ideal orbital cases. You need to go ahead, you need to sort of make some room so that you can uh, treat them. And we get cases where it just looks like the entire artery is a cast of calcium and we'll still use orbital. However, you know, that's at a trade-off. I mean, we know that there are emboli which occur with all devices, but the emboli that occur with intimal calcium and that device are probably substantial. You know, I'm working separately on a device, which is a proximal ball protection device for tibial interventions, a startup company with Peter Schneider and some others, which you'll hear about soon. So, and we've done some first in human experiment. It's amazing what you're capturing. I'm excited to hear about that. Yeah. Right. So we kind of take that as a cost of doing business. If you're able to use a different technology, definitely you're going to have a little less emboli. And most of the time, it doesn't matter. But the patients that you're talking about, where they have single vessel runoff, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, microcirculatory impairment, puny little outflow vessels, you know, you take one of those out, you're shut down. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, and you know, something you don't even recognize it angiographically. I mean, the problem is when you talk about embolization, what most people are thinking of is there's a vessel and now it's cut off. But in the spectrum of embolization, there's a lot more. I mean, how many times you see you know, an occluded vessel, but beyond did a wound blush after the intervention? The vessel's opened, but you don't see the wound blush quite as much. That's microcirculatory embolic injury. And you know, the biggest number that I sort of like to cite as we've researched is, is this idea of unplanned amputation. What is that? <laughs> you opened up the artery, you went, great, why, why any amputation? What's this unplanned amputation? All right. And we think that what that is, is debris that's gone downstream and affected the, you know, the small vessel bed. So You know we're leaning a little bit more we use a little bit more laser than we did and our strategy then is one of two things either we have pedal access through and through and we can use bad form that's you know balloon angioplasty deployment with force manipulation but without the balloon you're able to clamp the uh, laser above and then really guide the 0.9 through no matter how tight it might be because you're pushing and pulling at the same time or we'll go ahead and we'll take a 1.5 millimeter low profile mini track balloon or something like that create enough space usually that'll go down. And then we can go ahead and lase and disrupt that medial calcium. So just another consideration of those patients with really impaired runoff.
1: This is really good work you're doing. I mean, it's, we're lucky to have people in our field to be able to do, I mean, this type of research and, and this type of micro look at things is pretty amazing. You know, it's probably the reason why I went into endovascular, you know, IR. Technology just keeps on going. I mean, it's just, constantly and constantly changing. So thank you for all the work that you've been doing. Any other take-home points about the study or, or future developments that you have?
0: To the comment you just made, I, I like the idea of thinking big and thinking small at the same time. And, you know, maybe I'm lucky enough that I work with enough companies to be in a position to try to dig a little bit deeper. But I think that's true of anybody. And, you know, anybody who's out there who's using these devices and wants to really understand what's going on and wants to do some work, You know, they can generally reach out to the companies and, you know, work on a plan to better understand the mechanism of action with an eye to how this will change their clinical use of the device. And IRs are some of the smartest people I know. I mean, it's really uniformly a remarkable group of individuals I've found for 30 years now. Not only that, but a really inquisitive group, right? We always want to know a little bit more. So we're in an ideal position, have always been, to think about these technologies, you know, potentially do the work necessary to improve them or understand them better going to make a difference for our patients.
1: Yeah, kudos to, you know, Angiodynamics for allowing you to look into their device a little bit more post-market release and look at this, you know, and and be open to either finding positive or negative results. And obviously this looks very positive, so that's exciting and good for Angiodynamics. (laughs) Well, uh, John, thank you again for coming onto the show. I I really learned a lot and I hope I can uh, convince my group to buy a micro ct scanner by nikon <laughs> <laughs> joking but uh no I, I i continue to look forward to more advancement that you are doing
0: and, and all the others in the field and so thanks for coming back on the show yeah and for the podcast listeners if you have any ideas call into back tables share them they'll pass it along to me or call me directly together we can make a difference awesome man, do the best, man. <laughs> you're the best man you're the best all right Thank
1: you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts, Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming,
0: and Ali Behetti.
1: Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross,
2: and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript
1: support by Taylor Robinson.
2: And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by
1: Anne Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Willie Kinnebrew.
2: Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening.